Hello and welcome to the Spine and Nerve Podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Hovez. And my name is Dr. Carvelis. And today we are going to dive a little deeper into a subject uh, that I think is very, very poorly understood um, in the community at large, but also I think even within the pain management realm. Uh, and so, you know, we constantly have people dis- discussing this with us, asking us questions about it. Everybody from primary care docs to physical therapists to surgeons um, and you know, quite frankly, I, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper just so that we can get a little bit more understanding. Definitely not a, a, a truly complex deep dive that would be necessary, say, for the pain boards, uh, but at the same time, enough so that people get an understanding. And so the topic that I w- want to go over is complex regional pain syndrome. Um, and interestingly, you know, CRPS, um, formerly known as uh, RSD or reflex sympathetic dystrophy, uh, int- today I still hear people say c- the what CRPS means in different terms because I think that's how poorly it's understood, right? Um, you know, I've I've seen in, in notes from surgeons for chronic regional pain syndrome and all of these other ways of being able to describe it, um, and so th- I think those kind of that setting alone gives you an gives everybody a kind of an understanding of how poorly this is understood as, as a diagnosis. Uh, so Dr. K, if you'd be so kind, why don't you introduce us uh, to complex regional pain syndrome um, and we'll kind of start walking into uh, what that really means. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I 100% agree. I think it's something that as a medical community, we struggle to define and to diagnose and to treat. But at the same time, I think the reason that there continues to be Uh, focus as well as effort in regards to improving the diagnosis and treatment is because when patients are afflicted with uh, complex regional pain syndrome, when they're dealing with complex regional pain syndrome, it's one of the most uh, debilitating conditions in terms of of affecting their function, their quality of life, and their health. And that's why we do need to continue to strive to improve our diagnosis and treatment of the condition. Uh, One thing that I'll say in regards to, um, uh, as Dr. Hovez mentioned, our struggle to define and diagnose the condition is that I do think there's an incredible variability in terms of when this disease process, which I think is a, is a very significant spectrum, like most disease processes having a spectrum, but um, very much so in CRPS, not only is there a huge spectrum in terms of the severity of the disease process, but there's a huge spectrum in terms of how each individual's body and nervous system responds to the underlying pathophysiology of CRPS. And even that pathophysiology, we're uh, continuing to try to understand. All that being said, we're going to do our best to provide some of the um, uh, some of the uh, facts that we do know about CRPS. And as always, all we have to go based on is you know the research that's out there up to this point in time and in our own clinical experience and then just thinking about the science behind it so starting with the definition of uh, CRPS so complex regional pain syndrome is a painful disease process typically involving the distal extremities characterized by persistent pain that is out of proportion to any underlying injury with associated sensory autonomic trophic and motor abnormalities. I think that's a fairly reasonable way to think about uh, this disease process. Now, importantly, uh, there is a distinction made between CRPS type 1 and type 2, with complex regional pain syndrome type 1 typically being 
a more diffuse process with a, uh, without a specific identified nerve injury. In contrast to CRPS type 2 that does have an underlying specific nerve injury identified. This, that being said, there is a lot of controversy around the, that distinction between CRPS1 and CRPS2. For example, we generally think of a fracture or surgery as falling under complex regional pain syndrome type 1. But if we think about it, and we all know that there's nerve injury, when we have a fracture, when we have a surgery, of course, you know, uh, we are uh, injuring the peripheral nervous system to some degree, uh, whether it be the small fibers going to the uh, cutaneous innervation, there, there's going to be nerve injury. So that distinction between CRPS1 and CRPS2 continues to be uh, a topic of debate. But for now, uh, that is something that we utilize in terms of uh, speaking the language of CRPS. What, let's let's see, back it up even farther. I know we're getting into the the definition, and uh, obviously it's it's necessary, and we'll get into some of the diagnostic criterion. Um, but let's kind of back it up and kind of take a, a ten thousand square foot view, right? And 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 really try to break it down for somebody who maybe has never heard of CRPS before, right? And so. If, if somebody's never heard of this disease process, and yes, we can talk about um, you know the abnormal sympathetic response, and you have all of these different uh, changes, and we'll get into those four categories, you know, Budapest criteria, yada, yada, yada. But at its nuts and bolts, if somebody comes in, they're non-medical, and they're trying to understand, okay, I just got, or my friend or my mother-in-law just got CRPS. What at its basic core does that mean? I think one, one way I think about it, and like your opinion as well, but one way I think about it is, you know, complex regional pain syndrome is uh, one of the, you know, poster boys, I guess, for lack of a better term that's coming to my mind right now. But when we think about chronic pain and when we think about situations where people have had an injury and typically th at this point in time, things should have healed. We're past the normal tissue tissue healing uh, that we understand about, you know, that fracture or that wound or that injury, that sprain. Uh, once, you know, thinking about centralization of pain, chronic uh, pain, uh, I think complex regional pain syndrome kind of epitomizes those, uh, uh, epitomizes that process. And, and with complex regional pain syndrome, we have both uh, peripheral sensitization and central uh, central sensitization. Uh, and sorry, I know I'm not doing a great job of <laughs> if someone's not, not having a medical background coming in, but bottom line is your body is uh, having an atypical uh, pathologic uh, response to an injury that is now significantly out of proportion uh, and has gone out of control. Um, and our nervous system is not functioning properly uh, it's now constantly sending pain signals uh, despite whether or not any of the original anatomic abnormalities uh, have are still there or still problematic yes yeah no I think I think you've actually done a pretty good job you I think you took the definition of chronic pain and just used smaller words which is good. <laughs> but I think that's kind of what uh, CRPS is right I mean it is I, th I think the you know using that as the framework of understanding you know chronic pain and, and central centralized pain makes a lot of sense I mean CRPS truly is uh, a sensation where we have nerves that aren't acting the way that we, we want them to um, for this uh, 
for this specific thing, it's usually more of the uh, sympathetic mediated uh, responses. Um, but you know, they're constantly activated when there's no reason for them to be activated, right? And 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 I think that that is really the big thing to make sure that patients understand, right? I mean, usually when we're starting to talk about this, you're like, look, the nerves, they're not working the way that we want to, you know, both in, in your foot and leg, as well as as they get up through the spinal cord and get processed into your brain. That entire circuitry is not doing what we want it to do. It's sending a lot of abnormal signals, you know, not just pain, but, you know, there's other factors that those signals uh, or that those nerves are uh, being, you know, not are not working the way that we want them to that are involved with it. So um, as opposed to just pure chronic pain, um, there are also this idea that there are these other factors that are associated uh, that are all the signals that come through the nerves. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the hardest part, uh, which you kind of alluded to earlier, is that, you know, yes, a lot of times we try to associate pain and especially chronic pain with a specific injury um, or a specific thing that happened. But especially with CRPS, it's not always the case. Yes, there's usually some type of an inciting factor, but, you know, a perfectly done surgery, uh, you know, with every single step done the right way, everything meeting standard of care uh, can still end up with these unfortunate responses and and that's i think a very challenging thing for for anybody to understand i mean for physicians obviously that's awful right how to do everything to try your hardest to to literally meet every uh standard of care and the fact that for a very very small percentage of the population they can still have an outcome that is as bad as crps i think is is, is challenging but you know but of course for, for patients when you completely don't understand that or, or what that means and have never really heard this it can be really devastating. Yeah. Uh, um, so, so that's kind of the the bigger view. Now we'll dive a little bit deeper. You know, Dr. K already started uh, delving into some of the more scientific ways that we uh, think about CRPS and why CRPS differentiates uh, from other uh, disease processes. Um, but we're gonna. I want to kind of touch on uh, probably one of the most important aspects when you're actually looking at CRPS. Um, and so we'll just kind of go into what's called the Budapest criteria, or this is the diagnostic criteria, and this is the way that we think about it. And then I think kind of stepping back from there, we can kind of go into kind of how much this affects people and the spectrum that we see um, this causing. But, you know, just because we've already talked about how it's not just pain, right? There are these other signals that the nerves send and they can all be affected. Uh, so Dr. K, take us away into the Budapest criteria, please. Yeah, absolutely. So when we as we mentioned, the diagnosis of CRPS is a is a challenging diagnosis. Um, it is a clinical diagnosis. Originally, the International Association for the Study of Pain created the Orlando criteria, um, but this was later on modified in 2010 uh, at a at a meeting in Budapest uh, with experts in the field. And so essentially, <clears throat> when thinking about the diagnosis of CRPS at this point in time, I think it is reasonable to utilize those Budapest criteria as your uh, diagnostic criteria. So uh, specifically in regards to what the Budapest criteria are. So number one, as we talked about uh, at baseline, these patients have persistent refractory pain that is out of proportion to the original injury. Um, Subsequent to that, we do look at both subjective symptoms as well as uh, clinical uh, findings on physical exam. So in terms of uh, what the patient is reporting, technically the patient must report at least one symptom in three of the following uh, four 
categories. So the first being sensory. So this is when patients are going to report hyperesthesia or allodynia. And as we have reviewed in the past, hyperesthesia is when patients are reporting uh, um, accentuated pain to a painful stimuli. So for example, if you do pinprick, typically that's going to be a mildly painful stimuli, but if they're jumping off the table or saying that's extremely painful, that's hyperesthesia. In contrast to allodynia, where a normal a stimulation that typically is not painful is causing pain, so light touch. That's one of the first things I always do when I'm examining someone that I am concerned about the possibility of CRPS. I find the affected uh, area and then I gently, you know, I'll t first touch the contralateral limb. I'm like, is this painful? No. Touch the other side. Light touch. Is that painful? Yes. Then I'm, you know, that's one of the uh, major things I'm starting to be concerned about. Um, the next subjective category that we're looking at is vasomotor. So this is the patient reporting uh, temperature difference uh, side to side, uh, color changes side to side. Um, the next category being pseudomotor or edema. So this is the patient reporting uh, asymmetry uh, from one limb to the other or one side of the body to the other in terms of uh, swelling, edema, or uh, sweating uh, changes. Um, the last category uh, being motor or trophic changes. So this is where patients are going to report uh, changes in their range of motion, uh, changes in their strength. Uh, they may report tremor. Um, and they may have uh, changes in the hair, uh, uh, skin, or nail, typic typically thickening of the uh, skin or nails. So I want to take, we'll take a break from the diagnostic share for a second. So normally this patient's coming in, um, you know, limbs tend to be more affected, right? And so they're saying, okay, my, my ankle hurts, um, you know, it hurts to, to walk, it hurts when I'm lying in bed and the sheets are touching it. Uh, you know, there are times throughout the day where my ankle feels really cold, and then there are other times where it's it's sweating. You know, and and I don't really understand why. It's very different from the other side. Those are the things that start popping up in the early conversation uh, because those are sh strange, right? You won't you don't normally expect that one ankle is going to sweat and the other is not. I think most of us probably wouldn't expect that our ankle is going to sweat. Period. Uh, it's not a common sweating location for most people, uh, and so. You know, you start hearing these things that sound different, um, and that's when, you know, for me, you start getting, you know, those tentacles raising in the back of your head where you're starting to think, okay, this this isn't uh, presenting as, you know, our normal musculoskeletal workup, right? Um, okay, sorry. No, no Con Continue on. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, that's a great kind of uh, bringing it into the clinic. Uh, that's, that's exactly the kind of things you'd be listening for when the patient's reporting the history. Now, in terms of your actual uh, physical exam, your evaluation of the patient, so you're going to be dealing with the same categories. Um, so remember, when we were talking about the subjective, it's uh, at least one symptom in three of the four categories. For your physical exam, you're looking for at least one sign at the time of evaluation in two or more of the following categories. So the main difference just being two rather than uh, three. So uh, here, we're again looking at sensory as the first category. So this is the hyperalgesia or allodynia, but this is on exam rather than subjectively reported. Vasomotor, so you're looking for temper, temperature asymmetry. It's nice if you have a temperature gun, um, uh, but ob obviously if it's fairly significant, you can even feel it. Uh, and then you're looking for skin color changes uh, or asymmetry on, uh, on visual examination. For the pseudomotor edema category, our third category, 
you're obviously looking for evidence of edema or sweating changes or sweating asymmetry. And for our last category of motor or trophic, you're looking for evidence of decreased range of motor, uh, range of motion, sorry, motor dysfunction. So looking for weakness, tremor, dystonia, uh, as well as those trophic changes that we mentioned, the hair, nail, and skin typically uh, uh, thickening. Yeah. So the patient <laughs> reports that they've had three of these categories, right? So that they come in with that history and then when you're evaluating them, you see two of them on examination mm -hmm. is, is how we kind of play it out, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, and then the last, the last diagnostic criteria being, uh, like most of these difficult um, conditions to treat and diagnose, uh, being that there's no other diagnosis that better explains the signs and symptoms. So it ultimately ends up being somewhat of a diagnosis of exclusion, like I said, like a lot of our more rare and difficult to treat uh, conditions. Yeah, and and that's that's always the the part that starts you know becoming uh, makes things I think a little bit more gray, right? You start seeing these patients, and then it's you know now we have to go about through the entire route of excluding all of the other possibilities because you know this is a diagnosis of exclusion, right? And so you know though obviously we can you know start thinking that this sounds a whole lot like CRPS and that uh, that's what likely we're going to be directing our care towards, you know, it is still our, our duty to make sure that we're ruling out other pathologies that could, you know, be presenting similarly. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Now that we've kind of gone through uh, the Budapest criteria, just because I think we were talking so much about what CRPS is, that that's helpful. Um, how common is this? Like, yeah, absolutely. So a little bit about the epidemiology. Um, Again, like many of the aspects of CRPS, we're still struggling to fully understand this, uh, obviously in part because it's a difficult condition to uh, con confirm and diagnosis, and it's confirm and diagnose, and it's relatively rare. But with the epidemiologic studies that are out there, two of the best done epidemiologic studies that I found uh, show the variability um, that we would uh, suspect. So with these studies, one of them <coughs> reported about 5.5 cases per 100,000 person years in the United States. And then there was another stu study done in the Netherlands that reported a significantly different result of 26.2 cases per 100,000 person years in the Netherlands. To kind of put this in a little bit easier uh, um, number to put in our minds. Based on those results, we'd be looking at numbers <coughs> uh, uh, to hypothesize that about, if, if we use those numbers, about 20,000 to 80,000 new cases per year in the United States would occur um, uh, in terms of CRPS. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind is that the incidence typically is going to increase with age. Uh, women generally are going to be affected three to four times more often than men. And then, as Dr. Hovis has alluded to a couple of times, and as we mentioned in our definition, it's going to be the typically the extremities, and the upper limb is going to be affected about 60% of the cases, and the lower limb in about 40% of the cases. As you notice, 40 plus 60 is 100%, but you also notice I said about. So although it's much more common for the distal upper limb and lower limbs to be the uh, site of CRPS, it's not impossible uh, to get it in other locations as well. Um, Fracture, sprain, elective surgeries are typically the most frequent uh, reported triggers uh, in terms of the, um, uh, the event leading up to the development of complex regional pain syndrome. Yeah, yeah. and so, it, you know, CRPS is, 
is challenging um, and you know I always tell patients that when we're diagnosing them with it or uh, presenting this as one of the options uh, that we don't take it lightly when we're talking about this and you know obviously unfortunately people are gonna go to dr. Google and look things up um, and there are some very significant um, photos and 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 forums that that show up when people start looking at it and CRPS can be a very devastating process it's not always um, and you know the quicker that we identify it the quicker that we in initiate treatment uh, definitely the better that patients do um, you know for brevity's sake you know we've kind of gone through our the treatment algorithms before but starting from most conservative and moving up quickly uh, through through the ranks to more invasive um, I always tell people that you know when you're talking about CRPS this is a time that once we feel like that's the most likely diagnosis, I usually become a little bit more aggressive uh, early on uh, as opposed to some other pathologies because all of our data suggests that if you can diagnose and initiate solid treatment within 12 months and actually you know, calm those symptoms down and you know, for lack of better terminology, put the CRPS into remission within that first 12 months, we have a much better chance of preventing some of the long-term chronic uh, repercussions of CRPS. Um, and so, it, yes, we're always going to get people into physical therapy. Yes, we're going to start with uh, as many conservative things as possible. You know, topical ointments, ice baths, uh, contrasting textures and contrast baths are all part of the conversation uh, that I have with patients from the initial uh, appointment. Um, but realistically, I usually start really quickly ramping up and, you know, right, right off the bat, you know, getting medications involved, you know, discussing some of the interventions that we have that are available. Um, for brevity's sake today, we're not going to go too far into a lot of the treatment things for it. Um, but we will kind of at least briefly touch on some of them, right? And so, you know, I've already brought up physical therapy, absolutely a mainstay of treatment from the second they're diagnosed for the rest of their life, right? And I always tell patients, look, you're gonna learn how to, how to do a contrast bath, which is putting your arm into, or, or foot into different uh, temperatures and, and uh, feelings of mediums to be able to kind of change those sensations going through those limbs. You know, you're gonna be touching a, a lot of different things because what we, I always, the way I explain it is we want as many normal signals to go through those nerves as possible, right? And so if you're touching a silk shirt and a wool shirt and a cotton shirt, that's going to be sending three different, very distinct uh, sensory inputs through. And the more that we're getting quote unquote normal sensations going through, the more that we're trying to retrain those nerves to think the right way. Um, you know, topical ointments, medications, um, you know, for neuropathic agents being a very common one. We've touched extensively on neuropathic agents uh, for uh, other topics. I'm very partial to Cymbalta, uh, Duloxetine for CRPS, um, but all of the others and whatever patients tolerate as well. You know, and then kind of quickly moving on to some slightly more invasive things. You know, we've the sympathetic nerve blocks are, are the usually a, the one of the first things uh, that an interventional pain physician will do. Uh, and so a lumbar sympathetic block versus a you know stellate ganglion block. Um, if it's you know maybe more pelvis and impar ganglion block. I mean there are a lot of different places where we can uh, target those, that sympathetic chain and try to block those inputs. Um, you know, and there. Honestly, are even there's even really good data on some things that you know I myself have never done, but read extensively about bisphosphonates being something that's I think really interesting for uh, CRPS. In fellowship, we did a lot of ketamine for CRPS, and these are you know infusions uh, that patients are are getting so that you're trying to reset the entire system. Um, 
jump in, Dr. K. I know <laughs> I, I, I kind of went yeah. on a, on a soapbox no. spurt. No, that was perfect. And, you know, just like Dr. Hovez mentioned, like any of our other conditions, we're thinking about lifestyle modifications, activity modifications, therapies, medical equipment, medications, procedures, sur- surgical intervention, minimally, minimally invasive surgical intervention, um, uh, further diagnostic workup and, and additional consults. We're always thinking through that algorithm. One thing I'll just emphasize, Dr. Hovis brought up the physical therapy, the range of motion, the uh, doing the different um, uh, sensations to the area. That's critical. So that's where the education part comes in because these people are not going to want anything touching their limb. They're not going to want to be moving their limb. And so it's critical to make them understand that although in the short term, it feels better to not move the limb, to not have anything touch it. That's what's making the complex regional pain syndrome worse. And so doing range of motion, doing normal sensation, that's gonna be the key, the foundation of any of the treatments that uh, we do moving forwards. Um, so that's where the education and re-emphasization at each uh, visit uh, really comes into play. Um, next week, we're gonna delve uh, a lot further into one of the specific uh, treatments for a complex regional pain syndrome. We may review a few of the things that Dr. Hovis and myself just talked about treatment-wise and then jump into a, a specific treatment that does show promising uh, results and that's specifically dorsal root ganglion uh, stimulation. Um, in anticipation of that, uh, uh, if anyone's interested to do a little uh, pre-reading, um, <laughs> the study that we're going to be talking about is a, a study published by uh, Dr. Timothy Deere and his colleagues uh, published in 2018 regarding uh, dorsal root ganglion stimu- stimulation compared to traditional uh, 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 dorsal column stimulation for a complex regional pain syndrome. And um, like I said, we'll delve much further into the uh, study itself and the results next week and talking about dorsal ganglion stim- stimulation itself. Um, but bottom line, what that study showed is that uh, the patients, and these are, keep in mind, you know, these are patients that have a uh, difficult to treat condition that have been refractory to a lot of conditions. So these results are very encouraging. But in that specific study, what they defined as success was greater than 50% improvement in pain also with no uh, adverse outcomes, including no stim-related neurologic deficits. And what they found was in the dorsal root ganglion arm of the study, 81.2% of patients met that predefined successful treatment in comparison to about 55% for the traditional stim, which is still fairly good as well. But so like I said, we'll delve much more into dorsal root ganglion stimulation and that uh, study as well as other research uh, next week. You guys didn't think you'd get away without Dr. Carvelis actually quoting literature uh, in the study. Tried really hard to close it up before he could, um, but yeah, I, you know, we've we've kind of purposely stayed a little bit away from neuromodulation uh, so far uh, on th- this podcast. I think I've brought up that likely as we delve in, it's going to be a multi. Uh, podcast uh, discussion. Uh, this is an area where both Dr. Carvelis, myself, uh, Dr. Garay, and our entire practice is very uh, interested. Um, you know, we dedicate a lot of our resources towards uh, neuromodulation. Uh, you know, we're involved in uh, large-scale multicenter clinical trials uh, in pushing uh, this industry forward and finding more uh, evidence as to how well this can help patients. Um, but yes, uh, spinal cord stimulation has always been one of uh, the mainstays of treatment for complex regional pain syndrome. Dorsal ganglion being a newer uh, type of stimulation product that has a lot of promising results uh, early on, uh, and we will uh, work towards uh, part two of our CRPS discussion where we will talk a little bit more in depth about some of the uh, the more invasive uh, treatments, um, just because I think we ended up t- going a little bit longer uh, than we were anticipating on uh, describing CRPS because it is such a, a challenging um, diagnosis uh, and a challenging 
me- mentally challenging thing to wrap your head around, even as a physician, I think, when we're talking CRPS. Um, thanks for bearing with us. We will uh, catch you guys for part two. As always, uh, this podcast is meant for education and entertainment purposes only. Uh, if you feel anything that we discuss might be relevant to you, please discuss it with a healthcare provider. This is not medical advice. Uh, thanks again, and we'll see you next week. Okay, so I have no uh, financial disclosures. Um, so before we get started with the details of the um, lecture itself, I do want to go over some key points um, that we will revisit at the end, and uh, just to kind of prime our minds for some of the things that we'll be uh, covering. So the first key point being that, like we know, chronic pain is very prevalent, and uh, as we know, it has the potential to have a debilitating impact on the patient's health, their function, uh, and their quality of life. The second key point being that, as with all treatments, uh, the use of opioids is very much a risk and benefit analysis for which it is important for us to take into consideration not just the uh, potential for tolerance, dependence, addiction, and death, um, but also for other long-term risk, uh, including increased risk of adverse cardiovascular events, suppression of the immune system, causing and worsening depression, altering the hormone system, and even lowering the pain threshold. So this is one thing that I always bring up to patients because I think that we're all very familiar with when we walk into a patient room and we're talking about the risk of opioids. As soon as we start seeing um, the risk of tolerance, dependence, addiction, and death, that patient, you can almost see in their eyes, they think, well, I'm not addicted. I'm only gonna take this medication as prescribed. That's not me, the concern uh, that you're having. So I make sure I emphasize to them, yes, we're always concerned and vigilant about that uh, addiction and death, but we're also very worried about the long-term risk, uh, or we're monitoring and concerned about the long-term risk for those patients. And then I go over including but not limited to uh, all these things that we just mentioned, and we'll go into a little bit more uh, detail in a, in a moment. <coughs> Based upon the available research uh, and the ongoing policy changes, as we're all very aware, most likely the use of opioid medications is going to continue to overall decrease, but that does not mean that we do not have options for treatment of painful conditions or that we cannot be successful in treating these painful conditions. For the treatment of chronic pain, uh, a healthcare provider can uh, and should consider a multimodal approach, which would include, uh, and these are, for every patient I see in the clinic, these are kind of the checkpoints I run through in my mind real quickly to make sure that I'm uh, addressing each one of these in my head uh, for the patient. So lifestyle modifications, activity modifications, therapy modalities, whether that be physical therapy, occupational therapy, medical equipment, uh, different types of bracing, uh, medications, procedures, uh, surgery interventions, whether those be minimally invasive or uh, more aggressive surgical options, and then uh, thinking about if there's further diagnostic workup included, and as we'll kind of emphasize throughout the talk, especially when it comes to chronic pain, because uh, as Dr. Kong was uh, mentioning, acute pain is very, it's, it's easier for us to, uh, uh, to understand and to work with the patient on. We know exactly where the problem is. In a chronic pain setting, things become very complicated and more difficult to pinpoint. Um, that being said, making sure we have the most correct and the most up-to-date diagnosis is gonna make our treatments that much more effective. Um, if we don't have the right diagnosis and we're doing all these treatments targeting uh, a potentially suboptimal diagnosis, we're gonna 
keep running into issues with, with that patient. Our fifth key point being that once we make progress with the treatment plan, uh, that's not uh, the end of the road. So I always uh, uh, bring this back to our patients that if we do a procedure, we make a medication change, and we have some success, um, that's the time to make sure that the patient understands that, okay, now we need to turn to the foundation for this and make this a sustainable um, benefit. Because as we know, even for our procedures and our surgeries, Unfortunately, those are most likely not going to last the lifetime of the patient, but if we can get things under control, that's when emphasizing the lifestyle modifications um, and the healthy, active approach to life is really going to make a difference. And that last statement, I think, is important. I always remind myself, as I, and I also remind patients, that few, when it, comes, when it comes to chronic processes, few, if any, tools we have in medicine are ultimately more powerful than what we're putting in our bodies and what we're doing with our bodies. Um, this slide, um, hopefully you guys will have access to these slides, and I think this is a good slide for any, uh, any patient that you're going to be prescribing opioid medications. This is a good slide to have as a reference because we should at least be doing this at a minimum. Um, not only, uh, obviously, first and foremost for the health and safety of the patient, but also for your uh, safety. We all uh, put in so much uh, time and work and effort into each day and into each patient visit. Um, so we want to protect ourselves and you know, we're tr always trying to do the right thing for the patient. Um, but as we know, there's a lot of policies out there um, and we want to protect ourselves as best we can when, as we're trying to do the right thing for the patient. So uh, these are just some of the things I won't uh, necessarily um, go over each one right now in detail, but uh, do, do they have access to these slides? So we, we, we can easily do that. Okay. I, I see that. Um, so next to your signature, if you put your email address, uh, we, 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 we have all of these okay. online because you've already given this to yeah. us. So, so we can we can just as easily just send out the entire we'll and uh, just and was it uh, I, was it seventy or seventy five uh, um, um, uh, morphine equivalents or is it ninety morphine equivalents for naloxone? For that law right now, it's uh, ninety. But then for any patient that is also on a benzodiazepine and or if you as a clinician feel like they are at high risk. Um, so if they have significant psychiatric comorbidities or a history of overdose, then you would, so there's some clinical. Uh, uh, it can be lower, we can choose lower. Yes. But, but, yeah. but, but, but if they hit 90 or more just on, a, on an opiate, then, then absolutely required. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so <clears throat> just to, um, at, in this slide where they talked about the uh, risk uh, avoiding as best we can the use of a centrally acting uh, depressant medication, uh, including benzodiazepines when we're prescribing opioid medications, uh, just to drive home that point. Um, so <coughs> as we all know, there is a black box warning on the use of uh, opioids and benzodiazepines. Studies, interestingly enough, um, have found that benzodiazepines uh, are present in over 30% of overdoses involving opioids, 
And there was a study by Dr. Sun and colleagues that was published in 2017. This was a retrospective analysis of claims data from 2001 to 2013. It included over 300,000 patients, and it found that the percentage of uh, patients receiving both opioids and benzodiazepines had actually increased from 2001 to 2013 from 9% to 17% uh, within that patient population. Uh, that same study also evaluated the incidence of opioid overdose and found that after adjustment for age, sex, and medical comorbidities, uh, and importantly including psychiatric comorbidities, the annual adjusted incidence for opioid overdose was still significantly increased for patients using a benzodiazepine in combination with opioids with an odds ratio of 2.14. There was another study that had a more uh, drastic number. This was a study by Dr. Dasgupta and colleagues, and it was published in 2016 in Pain Medicine. This included over 2 million uh, patients, and there, within that patient population, there was 478 opioid overdo overdose deaths. Um, and that study found that the risk of overdose death was 10 times higher for patients who are co-prescribed uh, benzodiazepines with an opioid compared to opioid alone. The take-home point being here that based upon the available research at this time and thinking about the science behind it, including that we know that both of these medications have the potential to cause respiratory depression, uh, we should avoid or uh, minimize the concurrent use of o opioids and benzodiazepines as best we can. <coughs> so um, in the following slides, uh, we'll go over the epidemiology and the impact of chronic pain as well as some statistics regarding opioids uh, and the impact of opioids on our patients. <clears throat> but really the concept I want to um, make sure I emphasize in the next few slides is that uh, absolutely op opioids we know um, uh, are a problem and have this significant uh, potential detrimental effect on the health and safety of our patients. But as Dr. Kong uh, also was uh, um, uh, very well describing Chronic pain in and of itself is a disease process. And so it, be, it becomes this important, uh, I, I think, concept that uh, um, we don't have uh, complete and true success just by uh, lowering opioid medications. We still have to uh, continue to try to treat the chronic pain process because um, as we'll go into a little bit more detail, um, yes, both, uh, both are problems, but um, the uh, chronic pain disease process in itself is very much a real issue we need to deal with too and, and consider the impact on our uh, patients. So getting into some of the statistics here just real quickly, as we know, uh, and I know this will be uh, somewhat a review, uh, so we'll try to get through it fairly quickly here, but as we know, chronic pain is unfortunately very uh, prevalent. Um, an article published in 2019 in the Journal of Pain that focused on the prevalence of chronic pain in the United States found an estimated prevalence of 19 to 43 percent of the U uh, United States adult population. That same article, I thought, was uh, very well done in uh, good statistics. They worked to create more of a scale of the severity of chronic pain and <coughs> uh, its impact on the function and the health of uh, patients. And what they found was that high impact chronic pain, which they defined as having pain on most or every day for three months or longer with greater than or equal to one associated uh, activity limitation, so an impairment in their, or, uh, in their ADLs or disability in their ADLs, that was estimated to have an overall prevalence of about 4.8% uh, or approximately around 10 million adults uh, in the United States. 
There was also an article published in The Lancet in 2019 that found that chronic pain affects approximately 20 to 30% of the world's adult uh, population. <clears throat> so a key finding uh, in that article that was evaluating the uh, prevalence of pain and, and high-impact chronic pain was that chronic pain was strongly associated with an increased risk of disability. In fact, even after controlling for other health conditions, the, the authors of that paper found that disability was more likely in those with chronic pain, even compared to patients with stroke, diabetes, heart disease, and kidney failure. Well, so, I'm sorry, yeah. but I was just wondering, John, at a point that you think it's convenient, um, now that the food's here, sure. so what we'd like to do is actually take a, a very quick break yeah, and then absolutely. get the food so that we're there. Yes. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. So, well,